welcome to the 29th of November 2022 episode of the Greenwich and Town for All Seasons Show podcast. This weekly podcast is hosted by me, Jeffrey Bingham Mead. I'm a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, long known as the Gateway to New England. The town was founded on July 18, 1640. Since those early humble beginnings, Greenwich, Connecticut has grown to become, in the 21st century, one of America's most notable and attractive communities. It's a special place that we call home. Whether your roots go back nearly 400 years as ours do, or whether you're here to stay or just passing through, well, we welcome you with open arms. You're a part of our history. And I'm so glad that you can join us for today's show. The Greenwich and Town for All Seasons Show podcast is made possible by Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you. You everywhere. Coming up on today's show. In November 1929, Frederick A. Hubbard wrote in his column, The Judge's Corner, about the history of the only pillared house in Greenwich, probably built before 1848. Located today at 183 East Putnam Avenue and known as The Columns, it was moved to its present location after 1877 by William G. Rockefeller. You'll learn about the history of this house and its owner-occupants. Victorian Summer, the historic houses of Belhaven Park, Greenwich, Connecticut by Matt Bernard is an incredible compilation of Belhaven's rich history. Featuring beautiful photos and ephemera, the book is the combination of decades of work and research taking its readers to America's Gilded Age here in Greenwich. On today's show, we'll visit Russell Cottage, also known as Bessonette, once located at 186 Otterock Drive. Its principal owners were L. Wood W. Russell and William H. Hayes. It was built in 1898, designed by architect Charles P. H. Gilbert, and sadly demolished in 1952. We'll go back in history to the years 1800 to 1808 as found in Before 2000, a chronology of the town of Greenwich, 1640 to 1999. Now, as we first reported last week about measures underway to grant the Samuel Ferris House in Riverside the highest level of historic preservation status and protection, we're going to share an update with you about that. Well, thanks to Leslie Gager and Greenwich Free Press, a special committee well, this has been noted uh, in, in her publication, um, that a special committee has been appointed by the town government to evaluate options for future uses of the Havemeyer Building on Greenwich Avenue, presently the headquarters of the Greenwich Board of Education. Ninety-nine years ago, on November 30th, 1923, there was a great deal of crime news, most of it in Greenwich focused on prohibition, and you'll hear more about that on crimes and misdemeanors. Well, my friends, tis the season. There's lots to see and lots to do and lots to enjoy as the December holidays fast approach. You've come to the right place to learn about the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. We will have all this and more as history continues to unfold. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. Make Site Design Associates of Greenwich, Connecticut your choice when it comes to taking your beautiful landscaped property to the next level. An award-winning landscape architecture studio since 1979, 
Site Design Associates places a high value on a unique multidisciplinary approach to landscape design and development that is second to none. From analysis to construction to maintenance with 35 years of experience, Site Design Associates offers services that are collaborative and visionary with each client's unique style in mind. Offices are located at 777 West Putnam Avenue in Greenwich, Connecticut. Call 203-869-6895 or go online to learn more at sitedesignassociates.com. The Long Island Sound Institute understands that a bright environmental future relies on brilliant ideas and methods. A special initiative by Site Design Associates, LISI is a community of diverse professionals, researchers, academics, and concerned citizens, harnessing the powers of imagination and innovation to achieve the ecological balance and conservation of Long Island Sound for present and future generations. It aims to use modern planning and the implementation of new technologies to conserve Long Island Sound, looking forward to a bright future of effective leadership. To learn more about the Long Island Sound Institute, go online to lisistudy.info or call 203-869-8632. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is a tribute to those Americans who served the nation on the international scene as ambassadors in the American diplomatic corps. There has never been a museum specifically dedicated to ambassadors. The museum's founders and supporters are committed to achieving its educational mission with programs and events for high school and college students. My friends, you can learn more by contacting the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, by calling 203-869-8632, right to Box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831, or go online at amusa.com. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595, Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor, his Greenwich office, at 203-485-7595. As Christmas and the December holidays rapidly approach, let us cherish family and friends this holiday season, and with it, a season filled with warm moments and delightful memories. Ladies and gentlemen, mark your calendars for Thursday, the 1st of December. Why? Well, the Greenwich Historical Society's annual Winter Market Cocktail Reception will be held at Christchurch Greenwich. That's at 254 East Putnam Avenue, 5.30 p.m. to 8 p.m. Suggested donation is $20. A portion of the 
evening's proceeds will go to support the Greenwich Historical Society's programs in education, the arts, and historic preservation. The annual winter market continues from December 1st through 3rd, or 9.30 a.m. to 9.30 p.m. at Christ Church Greenwich in the heart of the Putnam Hill National Historic District. Again, 9.30 a.m. to 5 p.m. on Friday, December 2nd, and 9.30 a.m. to 4 p.m. Saturday, December 3rd. You can learn more at GreenwichHistory.org. The magic of Christmas and holiday traditions come alive on Saturday, the 3rd of December, the 10th of December, and the 17th of December with Christmas in Cuscob, a holiday tour of the Bush Holly House. On this special holiday tour of the Bush Holly House, visitors will enjoy a festive walk through early 20th century Christmas and holiday traditions enjoyed by adults and children of the Holly family in the era of the Cuscob Art Colony and learn about early American wintertime and holiday celebrations as observed in the era of the new nation among the Bush family and their Greenwich neighbors. Tours last approximately 45 minutes and are appropriate for adults and families with children age 5 and older. My friends, masks are required for staff and visitors on the Bush Holly House tours. And again, learn more and register, please, at GreenwichHistory.org. Join us for a fun-filled afternoon of holiday adventure. Based on a Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale, the stead Fast Tin Soldier is a charming holiday puppet show that tells the story of an old-fashioned tin soldier who lives among a bunch of other toys and whose job it is to keep everyone safe. One a disgruntled jack-in-the-box who stirs up trouble, the steadfast tin soldier must decide what to do in this festive holiday's tale. Date is December 4th, times 11 a.m. to 12 p.m. and 1 p.m. to 2 p.m. Register at GreenwichHistory.org. The Greenwich Historical Society's Holiday Family Festival is on Saturday, the 10th of December, at the Bush Holly House Campus, 47 Strickland Road in Cuscob, 4.30 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. Bring your entire family for photos with Santa. Visit our festive dollhouse display in the historic barn, complete with gingerbread decorating and crafts in Santa's workshop. In our museum lobby, admire the festive wonderland that is the Festival of Trees, featuring community-crafted trees by local designers, merchants, nonprofit organizations, and garden clubs. Choose your favorite of the trees and bid in a silent auction to take it home. Take part in the holiday cheer and enjoy a winter beverage while listening to performances by the Connecticut Yuletide Carolers. Enjoy delicious treats from the crispy melty cheese truck as they dish out classic grilled cheese and tomato soup. Mm, that sounds good. And explore the historical society's beautifully illuminated grounds. Delight in the artistic prowess of professional ice sculptor Bill Bywater as he creates a wintry marvel from giant blocks of ice. Warm up outside by the fire with some s'mores and hot cocoa to round out an evening of holiday fun. Registration and administration are required in advance, and my friends, you can do that by going to Greenwich History. Org. If you have any questions, please call area code 203-869-6899. Again, that's area code 203-869-6899. Thank you. 
Judge Frederick Augustus Hubbard was a lawyer, writer, and gifted storyteller here in Greenwich, Connecticut. His remarkable life spanned the end of the 19th century and the first third of the 20th century. He used the pseudonym Ezekiel Lemondale, don't ask me where it came from, when writing about what he called Cracker Barrel stuff through his column, The Judge's Corner. Years ago, Frank Nicholson collected Judge Hubbard's Greenwich News articles, publishing them in compendium form as Greenwich History, The Judge's Corner, 150 Vintage Newspaper Columns by Frederick A. Hubbard, selected, edited, and indexed by Frank Nicholson. On today's show, I'll share with you column number 57, dated November 21st, 1929, titled History of Only Pillared House in Greenwich, probably built before 1848 on the south side of Post Road, later being moved to north side near Dr. Hyde. By the way, that building still stands prominently at 183 East Putnam Avenue in the Putnam Hill Historic District. It is presently the headquarters of North Castle Partners, a private equity firm. Column goes as follows. Whitman Bailey of New Canaan is an artist who writes. He has an adroit way of describing, in small compass, the subject of his sketches. Most of them are historical. They relate to old houses, churches, or outdoor scenes of the long ago. Probably with the purpose of adding to his list of interesting pictures, he sends us the following letter, which has been held up for more timely subjects. New Canaan, October 6, 1929. Can the corner tell me the history of the only pillared house in the village of Greenwich? It stands on the north side of Putnam Avenue at the foot of the hill below Dr. Hyde's. I have been told that it was built about 50 years ago and was then a much-admired mansion. It is still much admired, although it has not the advantage of its original location on the site of, quote, unquote, One Elm, once the home of William Rockefeller. From the records, it is difficult to determine who built it. It is not such a house as this neighborhood has usually produced. It is no more appropriate to a New England setting than is a reproduction of the Petit Trianon of Versailles. The front, with its pillared pillars and third-story overhang, is a southern style of architecture. And if I may interject here, that style of architecture is known today as Greek Revival. Anyway, back to the article. Alvin Mead, in 1833, owned a large tract of land on the south side of Putnam Avenue, including the Millbank Avenue corner. Here he was born in 1795. His father was Jared Mead. The land where the pillared house stood, with many adjoining acres, comprised the Jared Mead farm. Other Days in Greenwich says at page 158 that the Jared Mead farmstead was an old-fashioned lean-to covered with shingles to the sills, which were close to the ground. At the center of the house was a great stone chimney, which afforded an open fireplace in each room of the two stories. Down the hill a short distance were the somber farm, farm barns. This description was given to the author of the volume by Alvin Mead himself, and therefore must be correct. In 1848, Alvin Mead sold to Robert Williams Mead a large tract including the original site of the Pillared House, extending east to what is now Millbank Avenue. While the deed included quote-unquote buildings, 
They must have been the Jared Mead homestead and barns. Unless some further evidence can be produced, it cannot be assumed that Alvin Mead built the pillared house. Robert Williams Mead was the son of Dr. Darius Mead. Three years after he purchased the tract from Alvin Mead, he sold the westerly half to Joseph B. Sheffield. This doubtless gave Mr. Mead the corner lot with the old Jared Mead buildings free and upon which he built the 1850 in 1854, the house he occupied as a summer home so many years. That house still stands farther south on Millbank Avenue. Concerning Joseph B. Sheffield, nothing is known to the writer, but his deed from Robert Williams Mead includes buildings, quote-unquote, from which we might assume that Mr. Mead had built the pillared house or some other building, which was removed after the land was acquired by Mr. Sheffield. It is such a house as a New England farmer would not be likely to build. But Alvin Mead can hardly be classed as a farmer. He was a pioneer real estate operator nearly a century ago. Acting with him in some instances were the Tillots, Peter, James, and Susan. They owned large tracts on both sides of the post road. Alvin Mead owned what has since been known as Rockefeller Park, a deed-restricted development between East Elm Street, then Davis Avenue, and Mason Street, which includes all of Connecticut Avenue, Lincoln Avenue, and the east side of Milbank Avenue from Lincoln Avenue South to Connecticut Avenue, which included the tract extending from Mason Street Easterly to what was then known as the road to Davis Landing, since known as Milbank Avenue. He also owned the 18-acre tract east of Millbank Avenue and bounded on the east by Christ Church property. These extensive tracts, subsequently so valuable, he disposed of from time to time at a profit. But what, in these days, appear as insignificant prices? Obadiah Peck bought the parcel where the YMCA and Dr. Parker's house stand. Mr. Peck built that house in 1854, as well as the Bark Banks house next door, but failed in the enterprise. Frederick Mead purchased the tract on the east side of Millbank Avenue for $4,225, afterwards sold to William M. Tweed in 1870 for $55,000, a quote-unquote Tweed price, as the purchaser called it, and yet how much more is it worth today? The Tillots had made money. They were both borrowers and lenders. Their holdings included Perry Ridge and much land to the east and north. And Alvin Mead's land north of the post road adjoined the Tillots' land. They were neighbors, and their transactions of the same nature run through the record side by side. In the spring of 1833, Alvin Mead borrowed of the Tillots $6,000, probably to acquire land on the south side of the post road, and possibly, but not likely, to build the pillared house concerning which Mr. Bailey writes. But it is probable that it was built before 1848 because in Alvin Mead's conveyance to Robert Williams Mead in that year, quote-unquote buildings are included. And we know that the Robert W. Mead house that for so many years stood on the corner of Millbank Avenue and is still standing farther south was not built until 1854. But Robert Williams Mead was also to some extent a speculator, for it appears that he purchased of Alvin Mead in 1848. He divided and sold the westerly half, possibly with the pillared house, to Joseph B. Sheffield, 
in the spring of 1851, and it is not unlikely that this transaction left free of cost to Robert Williams Mead, the corner upon which he subsequently built his dwelling house. Concerning Joseph B. Sheffield, nothing is known by the writer. It is possible that he never lived in the pillared house, but retained his residence in New York while he built the house, for he owned it only one year, and on the 1st of April, 1852, sold and conveyed it to Henry A. Richards, another New Yorker. It is possible that Mr. Richards built the house. In those early days, his house was a social center, and his daughter, quote, the beautiful Julia Richards, will be remembered, at least traditionally, by some of our older readers. But Mr. Richards' reign was short, for he died in the house in 1855, and the following year, Alvin Mead, as the administrator of his state, sold it to Cyrus Manville of Elizabeth, New Jersey. The record shows the name thus spelled, but he was also known as Cyrus Manville, and this is undoubtedly an error which passed unnoticed. Later, on January 22, 1863, Mr. Manville, his name properly correctly spelled, sold the property to Robert Mead, who was a cousin of his next-door neighbor, Robert Williams Mead, and thus two Robert Meads came to live side by side leading occasionally in the matter of identification to some confusion. But he of the pillared house was as round as an apple, while the other Robert was as thin as a rake. Because of his rotundity, he was known about the village as Jolly Bob, quote-unquote. Of this, Mr. Mead was aware, and was in the habit of claiming that only his rotundity justified the name. Jolly Bob Mead was a successful New York businessman, and he was well-liked by his neighbors. He continued to reside in the Pillared House for more than a decade, but died there in the autumn of 1871. In 1877, the house was occupied by William Rockefeller, who subsequently bought it. But when he desired to build a new house on the site, the house was moved to its present location by Mrs. Coralie J. Knapp, a sister of Mrs. Frank Shepard, for many years the principal of Greenwich Academy. The late J. Howland Hunt, who subsequently bought it and lived in it for a time, made many improvements, and it remains a dignified example of the early Greenwich mansions. Frank Nicholson said this of Judge Hubbard, quote, One feels after reading him that here was Greenwich's Renaissance man, Traveler, sportsman, epicure, observer of the contemporary scene, arborist, botanist, critic, humorist, naturalist, an oracle, hmm, a profiler of people, a recorder of events, a describer of places, even a militant protester, and a sound recorder of various aspects of Greenwich history. Greenwich history, the judges corner 150 vintage newspaper columns by Frederick A. Hubbard, selected, edited, and indexed by Frank Nicholson, is available for borrowing from the Greenwich Library System. Visit GreenwichLibrary.org. You're in for a pleasant surprise at Coffee for Good. Located in the 1856 Solomon Mead Italianate-styled stone mansion at 48 Maple Avenue, behind the Second Congregational Church, Coffee for Good has quickly emerged as one of Greenwich, Connecticut's top coffee houses. Its success is driven by a never-ending commitment to quality, 
and inclusion. Coffee for Good shines as a unique nonprofit partnership between the Second Congregational Church and Abelis. It employs and trains people with disabilities through a self-sustaining platform so they can thrive in the community. The 1856 Solomon Mead House provides a 19th century style hip and unpretentious historical setting that evokes a setting filled with diverse people who are all inspired. Delightful staff, Super-friendly baristas, great coffee, pastries, and more. Coffee for Good provides free Wi-Fi, free parking, indoor and outdoor seating, with a relaxed local vibe that has become a popular study spot and destination for informal business meetings and gatherings. My friends, take it from me. The word about this gem has gotten around. Located in the historic 1856 Solomon Mead Italianate-styled stone mansion at 48 Maple Avenue in Greenwich, behind the Second Congregational Church, all part of the Putnam Hill Historic District and listed on the National Register of Historic Places, Coffee for Good is open daily, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., except Sundays. You can learn more at coffeeforgood.org. Forgotten, Greenwich in the 1700s is your chance to glimpse into the earliest years of Greenwich, Connecticut's history. Partnering with the Horseneck Chapter of the Daughters of the American Revolution, Greenwich Library welcomes historian Missy Wolfe. She is an avid historical researcher who has spent well over a decade researching and writing about Greenwich history. This popular historian will discuss her new two-volume set, The Great Ledger, Records of the Town of Greenwich. Again, mark your calendars for next Monday, December 5th, 2022, 6.30 p.m. to 8 p.m. in the Marx Family Black Box Theater in Greenwich Library's main branch at West Putnam Avenue and Deerfield Drive. Parking is free. Refreshments will be available during a meet and greet with Missy from 6.30 to 7 p.m., her presentation will start at 7 p.m., followed by a question-and-answer session. Wolf will be selling copies of Hidden History of Colonial Greenwich and Insubordinate Spirit by cash or check only. For more information, visit GreenwichLibrary.org. You are listening to the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, long known as the gateway to New England. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. Victorian Summer, the historic houses of Belhaven Park, Greenwich, Connecticut by Matt Bernard is an incredible compilation of Belhaven's rich history. Featuring beautiful photos and ephemera, the book is the culmination of decades of work and research taking its readers to America's Gilded Age here in Greenwich, Connecticut. On today's show, we'll visit Russell Cottage, also known as Bessonet, once located at 186 Otter Rock Drive. Its principal owners were Elwood W. Russell and William H. Hayes. It was built in 1898, designed by architect 
Charles P.H. Gilbert M. Sadley, demolished in 1952. Charles Pierpont Henry Gilbert, who lived from 1861 to 1952, is often confused with Cass Gilbert, the famous designer of the Woolworth Building that was in 1913, once the tallest building in the world. The two Gilberts were equally distinguished, though in different areas of the field. Cass was known for his great public structures, such as the U.S. Supreme Court Building, and CPH for his luxury New York townhouses and country mansions. A New York native, C.P.H. Gilbert studied at Columbia University and at the École des Beaux-Arts in Paris. American architects brought back the grand, stately Roman-style scene in public buildings, courthouses, banks, and libraries from Paris. This became increasingly popular in major residences as well. On his return from France, Gilbert took the mystifying step of decamping for the Wild West, where he practiced architecture in the mining towns in Colorado and Arizona, building banks and theaters. Gilbert also learned to shoot a gun while riding underneath a horse. I'll picture that. He was, he was back in New York in 1885, where his early commissions in Brooklyn revealed a strong Richardsonian Romanesque influence, though without the heaviness now associated with that style. Indeed, Gilbert's Park Slope brownhouses showed a learned exuberance incorporating Flemish, Queen Anne, and Renaissance Revival flourishes. Gilbert is best remembered for his stunning French Renaissance palaces in New York, designed for Gilded Age millionaires such as Isaac D. Fletcher, the railroad financier, Felix M. Warburg, the banker, Edmund C. Converse, co-founder of U.S. Steel, who was also a Belhaven resident, who perhaps introduced the architect to his neighbor, and Frank W. Woolworth, founder of the discount stores, the same Woolworth who hired Cass Gilbert for his skyscraper at 233 Broadway. Many of these splendid buildings remain. Warburg's house as the Jewish Museum, for example, and Fletcher's as the Ukrainian Institute of America. A house that Gilbert designed with Robert Gibson on Fifth Avenue for financier Morton F. Plant stands today as the Cartier Building on Fifth Avenue. One of Gilbert's early Brooklyn clients, Harvey Murdoch, was a developer of Long Island's wealthy North Shore colonies, Great Gatsby Country. In 1896, with Murdoch's help, Gilbert won a commission from Cornelius and Hoagland, the Brooklyn physician who came up with the formula for royal baking powder. Well, how about that? It was Gilbert's first known house on Long Island. The score of others followed, some of them jaw-droppers on the scale of those designed by Richard Morris Hunt, Horace Trumbauer, and Delano and Aldrich. Especially notable among these were two elaborately formal mansions in Glen Cove. Prembrook, for mine owner Joseph R. Delamar, and Winfield Hall for F.W. Woolworth. Completed in 1918 and 1920, respectively, these leviathons marked the peak of Gilbert's final neoclassical phase. Studying pictures of them, Winfield Hall still exists, one might easily forget the architect's earlier lightsome designs. 
Though never a visionary, his instincts were fundamentally conservative. Gilbert was a vigorous amalgamator of styles. The Hoagland House, for example, was all peaks and shingles with some half-timbering thrown in. Gilbert perfected that design on Otter Rock Drive in Belhaven for tobacco executive Elwood Wilson Russell. This was his second full commission in the neighborhood after completing the knoll, two lots south five years earlier in 1893 at 204 Otter Rock Drive. Situated on a through street lot to Meadowwood of just over 3.5 acres with water views to the southwest over Byram Harbor, the house with its half-timbered gables, bluestone piers, patterned shingles, candle-snuffer dormers, faceted, faceted uh, towers, sorry about that, and pointy peaks, could have appeared cluttered and busy in lesser hands. Scientific American classified the design as, quote, a modernized adaptation of the colonial style with early Dutch tower and English gables, treated in the half-tempered style of the whole being adapted to the American climatic conditions, unquote. What gave this design its particular harmony was its front facade roof line. It formed a broad gable that swooped down and flared gracefully over the piazza. That great simple curving A-shape contained within it a multitude of details, textures, patterns, colors. The shingles were stained russet brown, recesses, projections, and windows in clever arrangements with small, very shaped panes of glass. The wood shingles on the roof were stained a dark green. The whole effect was like a tasteful fantasy of an English country house. Indeed, Bessonette carries an echo of Richard Norman Shaw, who lived from 1831 to 1912, the great Victorian architect in England. The chief difference is that where Shaw's houses tended to be tall and bulky with towering chimneys, Gilbert's tended to stretch horizontally to ramble across the building lot. Enhancing this impression was the gazebo that shot off at an angle from the spacious piazza, a feature that Gilbert carried over from his Hoagland residence in Glen Cove, and would use again during his commission for the knoll, also in Belhaven. One entered the 17-room Russell Cottage through a small vestibule that gave way into a much larger living hall with sumptuous woodwork, paneled walls, coffered ceilings, and a double uh, and a grand double staircase with a delicately curving balustrade. Off the hall were a drawing room, billiard room, and dining room, whose semicircular front facade wall formed the lower reaches of the three-story tower. The second floor contained five large, bright bedrooms and two baths. The third floor contained numerous staffing rooms and storage, while the kitchen, servants' dining room, and laundry were located in the, the walkout basement. There was an adjoining architecturally complementary carriage house with staffing for stable hands and lodging for multiple horses and carriages. It was situated on the northwest corner of the property with its own service entrance and driveway from Meadowood Drive. The Russell stayed in this magnificent house for one slightly tempestuous decade. During that time, their son, John Johnson, he took his grandfather's surname, earned the epithet, the terror, unquote, for his reckless driving, once slamming into a horse-drawn cab, knocking out the driver's teeth and fatally wounding the horse. There was also a mysterious burglary while the house was occupied during the season by tenants from New York City. 
a tall man dressed in black appeared at the door and chloroformed the maid. He absconded with cash and jewels. The Russells then built Northridge, quote-unquote, a Cotswold-style house on 90 acres in the Greenwich backcountry a few miles north of Belhaven. The new owner of Russell Cottage, which somehow along the way acquired the name Bessonet, was William Henry Hayes, who lived from 1876 to 1949, a third-generation investment banker on Wall Street. His wife, Mary Sanders Hayes, who lived from 1876 to 1959, was a former president of the Women's National Republican Club and a, quote, forthright feminist, unquote, according to her obituary in the New York Times. The house changed little during the Hayes' ownership, but the grounds blossomed. In 1910, the Greenwich Graphic took note of the trees imported from Japan and Australia. The California privet hedge, quote, as impregnable as a stone wall, unquote, the vegetables, quote, in a high state of cultivation, unquote, and the pear and peach trees struggling under their burden of fruit. The same reporter was enormously impressed with the house's, quote, broad piazzas and cool retreats and its large working fireplaces, concluding grandly, Quote, such a home makes life worth with living, unquote. Well, who can, who can disagree with that? Uh, sadly, the house was demolished in the early 1950s. If one had to choose the single greatest architectural loss in Belhaven, Bessonet might be it. Over the ensuing years, the property was subdivided into three lots, and an assortment of ranch houses were built in its place. Starting in the 1990s, those homes began to be upgraded and replaced. By 2009, the remaining 1.5-acre lot that retained the original foundation for the cottage, with a one-story ranch built upon it, was sold, the house demolished, and the site cleared. In 2011, construction began on a postmodern shingle-style house by the firm Olsen Kundig Architects of uh, Seattle, Washington, that seemed to be modeled loosely on elements of Charles Fulham McKim's William J. Lowhouse, 1887, demolished in 1962, a shingle-style masterwork in Bristol, Rhode Island, and the firm's Isaac Bell House, built in 1882, extant, which many historians consider the penultimate example of the shingle style. The new home's dominant features on its front elevation facing Otter Rock mimic not only the dramatically long gabled element found on the low house, but also contains the massing and scale of the roof lines and exterior cylinder-shaped veranda of the bell house. With this new modern interpretation of the shingle style that was so prevalent in the early cottages found in Belhaven, surely the ghost of Bessonet is smiling, and I'll bet it is. Well, my friends, Victorian Summer, Historic Houses of Belhaven Park, Greenwich, Connecticut, by Matt Bernard, is available for borrowing through the Greenwich Library System. Now, I have to remind you that, of course, with the holidays coming up, why not consider purchasing a copy either for yourself or as a gift for someone? You may purchase a copy at the Greenwich Historical Society's Museum Store, where members enjoy a 10% discount and free gift wrapping and all sorts of things like that. So, my friends, please go to GreenwichHistory.org or call 203-869-6899. Greenwich Before 2000 was published as an updated and revised edition of another Greenwich History book, 
Before and after 1776, the comprehensive chronology of the town of Greenwich. Now, Greenwich before 2000 goes through the year 1999. It was adopted as a project by the Greenwich Historical Society, and it was made possible by the generous support and in honor of Russell S. Reynolds, Jr. He is a descendant of the founders of the town of Greenwich, whose numerous charitable bequests have advanced the preservation of Greenwich's history for many years, including the present day. This book is available at the Greenwich Library for borrowing. Um, Also, I believe, at the Greenwich Historical Society's museum shop or your favorite online bookseller. Now, today I'm going to share with you uh, what happened in Greenwich from Greenwich before 2000 from the year 1800 through the year 1808. In 1800, the Round Hill Methodist Episcopal Group is organized and meeting at the home of Nathaniel Houston. Now, in 1801, Odell C. Knapp starts a general store in a building at the corner of Round Hill and Old Mill Road. And by the way, that general store still exists today. It is known as the Round Hill Store, and it is still at that same location. Please go up Round Hill Road. You'll find it at the intersection of Round Hill Road and Old Mill Road. And please, by all means, go in and give them your business. In 1802, in May of that year, the Greenwich and Ridgefield Turnpike Company is incorporated to run from Ridgefield through Pound Ridge, Bedford, and Stanwich to Greenwich. On October 3rd, 1803, at a special town meeting, a proposal for a turnpike road from the Stratford River to the Byram River is opposed. However, a charter is granted by the state, absorbing various local companies, and authorizing the collection of tolls. On December 8th, the selectmen are empowered by the town meeting to lease various landings uh, in the best possible way. They are also directed to view the proposed road from Round Hill to North Castle. North Castle, by the way, is in Westchester County, New York. In 1804, the Stanwich Congregational Church builds a new meeting house, 50 feet by 38 feet, on the same site as the previous one. In 1805, the town library is established by a group of citizens, quote, as a means of infusing in the minds of youth the principles of truth, religion, and virtue, of checking and dissipation and licentiousness of conduct, with naturally results from ignorance and idleness, of making the period of manhood pleasant and useful and retirement of advancing years satisfactory and dignified, unquote, and placed in the Ebenezer Mead House at the foot of Putts Hill with Mr. Mead as president. By the way, that house still exists. It was moved in 1976, and um, it is now the headquarters of the organization Kids in Crisis on Salem Street in Cascob. On November, December 2nd of 1805, the town meeting votes that all swine may run at large on the highways if they are, quote, well rung, to, and that means two rings in the nose of each. And finally, in 1808, on October 25th of that year, rates for Nash's Corner School are determined by the school committee on the basis of the number of children each family sends and the number of days each child attends school. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I have to tell you that um, 
99 years ago, uh, on November 30th, 1923, um, the press was quite ablaze, for want of a better way of putting it, with all sorts of um, crime news. And of course, this uh, section of the show podcast is called Crimes and Misdemeanors. It is our ongoing effort at saluting the Greenwich Police Department and um, carrying on the celebration of its 125th anniversary, which actually started last year. <laughs> so anyway, let's start. We have several stories that I will share with you today. One of them um, is this. Its headline is, Town Hall Looks Like a Brewery. There's beer, beer everywhere, but not a drop to drink. Oh my. All right. Well, the story goes as follows. The excellent work which is being performed by members of the Greenwich Police Department has shown again on Wednesday morning when two truck drivers operating machines were arrested within a half hour of each other on East Putnam Avenue for transporting liquor without a permit and there being 85 barrels, each containing about 25 gallons in the two motor trucks. Officer Martin Nee took Jack Miller of 70 West 107th Street, New York City, about 9.30 near the head of Greenwich Avenue. In his motor truck, there were 35 kegs of beer. At 10 o'clock, Andrew J. McSweeney of 5701 First Avenue, Brooklyn, and his helper, John Carroll of 1677 Lexington Avenue, New York, were taken into custody by officers Lester Erickson and William Burke. These men were employed by Selton at 140. Or for, yeah, 145 Front Street in New York, their load consisted of 50 barrels of beer. The officers were kept busy unloading the trucks and rolling the kegs into the basement of the town building for over an hour. On Tuesday night at 10.30 o'clock, Anthony Macy of 33 Gilbert Street, Parchester, was brought into police headquarters by state officers Keating and Baker in the truck operated by Macy's were two barrels of wine. With the 30 barrels of beer found in a motor truck operated by Patrick J. Leahy of 333 East 30th Street, New York, by officers Erickson and Frank O'Connor, sorry, last Friday afternoon, there are now 115 barrels of beer reposing in the basement of the town building, besides the two barrels of wine. The booze runners are each held under $1,500 bail. My goodness, that's quite a bit. What else do we have here? Oh, yes, another headline. Had 30 barrels of real beer. Police make an interesting capture on the post road last night. And actually, this was already mentioned in the other article, but I'll say it anyway. Patrick A. Leahy of 333 East 30th Street, New York, was apprehended through some clever work on the part of officers Lester Erickson and Frank O'Connor. Last Friday, shortly after the noon hour, operating a motor truck which was loaded with 30 barrels of beer. The police had been tipped off that there was a motor truck carrying booze, quote-unquote, which had left one of the eastern towns and officers. Erickson and O'Connor stationed themselves on East Putnam Avenue. After several hours passed, Officer Erickson, who was on the lookout on the upper end of East Putnam Avenue, saw a motor truck approaching west, which answered to the description given to him, and he communicated to Officer O'Connor, 
who was a short distance west on Putnam Avenue, and the officer ordered the driver to halt as he approached and then directed him to police headquarters where the barrels of beer were removed from the truck and rolled into the basement of the town building. Each barrel was marked one-half of one percent, but an analysis made by Dr. A.G. Bennett, bacteri- oh, I love this, bacteriologist of the, of the health department, showed a much larger percentage of alcohol. Oh, my. Leahy was, or Leahy was arraigned in the borough court Saturday morning, being charged with transporting liquor without a permit, the case being adjourned until Tuesday morning. Let's see, what else do we have here? Let's see. Um, oh, this is interesting. Um, Portchester hooch. What's a hooch? I have no idea what a hooch is. If you know what a hooch means, would you please contact me at GreenwichAtoneForAllSeasons at gmail.com? Two glasses turned Greenwich man into a maniac. Well, how about that? James O'Hara, a local taxi driver, went to Portchester yesterday to visit some friends. According to his story, he drank but two glasses of liquor, which was apparently some sort of moonshine, for he returned to Greenwich in a, in a crazed condition, jabbing his arm through the plate glass window of a local garage, severely cutting his wrist. He was brought to police headquarters, where it took five police officers to hold him while the arm was being treated by a local physician. In the borough court this morning, Judge Meade imposed a fine of $7 in costs for intoxication and a breach of peace. And let's see, how about one more? Um, oh, yes, here it, it mentions the, the word hooch again. All right, we have to do that. Saturday in court, drunk hooch runners and auto law violator. Oh, my. All right, well, here we go. Henry Booten, arrested on November 23rd on a charge of intoxication, was fined $1 and costs by Judge James R. Meade last Saturday. Booten, aged 60 years, fell off the trolley car on Greenwich Avenue last Friday, and a pedestrian picked him up. Later, he was escorted by Officer O'Connor to the police headquarters, where he was entertained where he entertained the police force with good old Irish songs and recitations. Prosecutor White and that and said that Booten apparently did not acquire his load in Greenwich, and just where he got the short-distance material was not known. He is employed by Berthoff Brothers and lives in Mayanos. Quote, I can't remember where I got it, unquote, said Booten, Quote, but, Your Honor, I don't take any more of the bad stuff, unquote. His wife, he explained, was ill. Alvin Brown of New York and Robert Pitchard of Corona, Long Island, arrested by officers Johnson and Erickson for having improper lights, left a deposit of $21, stating that they did not wish to return. <laughs> Upon recommendation of Prosecutor White, their cases were rolled uh, on, upon the payment of $10.18 and costs. At the request of Prosecutor White, Judge Meade ordered that the wine seized on November 5th in the motor truck operated by Dominic Morelli and Frank Tricieri, both of New York, be destroyed. Nine barrels, each containing 51 gallons of wine, which Morel and Tricieri both claimed to be sacramental wine, 
and was to be delivered to a rabbi in the Bronx and a rabbi in Port Chester were confiscated after Officer Lester Erickson had arrested the two men, each of whom was sentenced to jail for 30 days and fined $200 and costs. Well, on last week's podcast show, I shared the news with you that the oldest house in Riverside, the Samuel Ferris house that was built circa 1760, uh, was gaining some very, very badly needed attention and for good reason. The reason why is because there is a move underway to give this house special status and to have it preserved in perpetuity. Rob Marchant of Greenwich Time has written about this. I'd like to share the article with you. And so follow along if you would. The headline on this, and we have this posted on uh, the um, uh, the blog site uh, for the show today, is Oldest Home in Riverside Section May Gain Preservation Status. And we'd like to thank uh, Robert Marchant for, for writing this and for Greenwich Time for publishing. The oldest home in Riverside in the Riverside section of Greenwich could be granted the highest level of historic preservation status and protection. Quote, it will be saved from the wrecking ball and contribute to the beauty and architectural heritage of Greenwich, unquote, said Anne Young, a representative of the Town's Historic District Commission. And when you take into account that these homes were all built by hand, even the nails, they take on a work of art dimension that you do not see replicated today, unquote. And that's certainly true. The Town's Historic District Commission recently initiated the process to designate the Samuel Ferris House, built in 1760, as a local historic property. The house at 1 Carey Road was sold this summer by the former owner, not publicly identified, and has been placed under the ownership of a non-profit, the Historic Properties of Greenwich, which is devoted to saving older homes in town from destruction. Realtor.com estimated that the value of the house, described as a three-bedroom, two-bath single-family home on a quarter-acre lot, at $891,700, although the actual sale price of the home was not listed. Redfin.com reported it sold for $365,000 on February 8, 2001, describing it as a charming and cozy with two fireplaces in the living room, a formal dining room, and having wide floorboards. The most recent owner was looking to sell the home, which would have been highly desirable to developers, said Elise Hillman Green, president of Historic Properties Organization, which felt preserving the old home was a major priority. Quote, It's the oldest one in Riverside, and only one of four from the 18th century along the Post Road and it's still sitting on its original site, quote-unquote, she said. And again, quote, most likely it would have been demolished and the site redeveloped. In the case of this little gem, the Samuel Ferris house, the owner was not in a position to protect, but was willing to work with us and sold it to us. We are in the process of protecting, which can take up to a year, and once we have the designation in place, we will put it back on the market with future options explored, and spelled out to potential buyers, unquote, Green concluded. Young said the local designation, quote, offers the strictest protection, unquote, 
for preservation, keeping the structure safe from demolition through a legal restriction. The Samuel Ferris House was already placed on the National Register of Historic Places in 1989, but that designation does not carry full protection from demolition or substantial modifications. In order to gain the status of a local history property, a study of the structure and its history will be carried out by the Historic District Commission, a town agency. Young said the study would include an architectural assessment as well as, quote, historic narrative, a bit of a biography, unquote. The Board of Selectmen is required to approve the study by the Historic District Commission as part of the process. The house was built as the main house for a roughly 30-acre farm on the east bank of the Mayanus River at the Coscob Harbor, according to previous research on the structure used for placement on the National Register. The house was built in the Cape Cod style, and it represents one of the last 18th-century buildings remaining on the Boston Post Road corridor in Greenwich. The house was moved around 80 feet in the 1920s as part of a road reconfiguration along the Boston Post Road. After World War II, the farm became part of a housing development built for veterans. At a recent Board of Selectmen meeting, town leaders expressed support for the preservation effort. Quote, Preserving our historic treasures, that's what makes Greenwich Greenwich, said select person Janet Stone for Selectman Fred Camillo said the approval of the study would be held off for a later meeting to allow for public comment. The Historic District Commission and the Greenwich Historical Society have been seeking to promote awareness of the, quote, local historic property, unquote, preservation process, which prevents demolition in perpetuity on older homes. Green said the aim was to encourage owners of older homes to seek out protections, which can be facilitated by the nonprofit. The organization will assist property owners in securing the designation as a local historic property. Quote, we're trying to start a model that is replicable, she said. We're hoping to educate the community and form partnerships, unquote. The Historic Properties nonprofit has four properties protected, as well as three historic districts. A survey by the Greenwich Preservation Community last year found that there are only about 100 homes left in the community that date to the 18th century. Well, I have to tell you that uh, when I woke up this morning and I was looking at the news, I clicked on the link to Greenwich Free Press, and lo and behold, it seems to be the season for, <laughs> for um, you know, preserving historic buildings and giving them the special status or certainly finding future uses for historic buildings. And now the latest, we've already uh, talked about the Samuel Ferris house over in, um, in Riverside, but now it is the historic Havermeyer building, the headquarters of Greenwich's Board of Education. This comes from Greenwich Free Press. Leslie Yeager, thank you very much for reporting this. Um, and the headline on this is Special Committee for to Evaluate Options for Future Use of Historic Havemeyer Building. On Tuesday before Thanksgiving, a newly formed special committee appointed by First Selectman Fred Camillo, the advisory committee on the Havemeyer Building, held an initial meeting via Zoom. The committee is chaired by Andy Duss. I hope I'm pronouncing his name properly. It's spelled D-U-U-S. 
Um, he served four years on the Board of Estimate and Taxation. Members included from the Board of Estimate and Taxation, also known as the BET, include Bill Drake, Miriam Kruiser, and from the Board of Education, Joe Kelly and Christina Downey. Additional members are Amy Courage, a local architect experienced with historic preservation and adaptive reuse, and John Lucerelli, who has a real estate background. The stated purpose of the special committee is to identify, evaluate, and possibly recommend potential options for the future use of the Havermeyer building and the site. The building is a contributing structure to the Greenwich Municipal Center Historic District, which is listed on the National Register of Historic Places. Quote, this apparently has been a dialogue that has gone on for many years. The most recent dialogue began early this year with Fred and others in town. Unquote. Dust said, quote, the condition of the Havermeyer building is getting worse. Unquote. Greenwich has successfully repurposed many of its historic buildings, reports Leslie Yeager of Historic Free Press. The former Greenwich High School, until 1970, on Field Point Road, was repurposed as today's Town Hall. Greenwich's old Town Hall on Greenwich Avenue, built in 1905 in the Beaux Arts style, was converted into the Senior Center and Arts Center. The post office, built in 1917, was restored and adapted as commercial space for restoration hardware. The building that is today the home of De Oro, the restaurant, at 253 Greenwich Avenue, with its vaulted arched ceilings and multi-level dining rooms, was originally a bank. The list goes on and on. And we have some pictures here. Oh, for the, quote, for the first time in my memory, there has been some willingness by some on the Board of Education to change their venue for the office's of the senior Greenwich school's leaders. Dus said, quote-unquote, the building is home to school district administration and is tax-exempt. Quote, the cost of renovating the building appears to be higher than what the town can afford currently, particularly given all of the other projects we have going on in the next couple of years, unquote. Dus continued, Quote, so the purpose of this committee will really be fact-finding and to advise the first selectman what the alternatives might be, unquote. Das said that there were several areas to focus on, starting with the town's legal latitude, given there were conditions on the original grant from the Havemeyer family, and additional conditions might have been imposed by the son of Henry O. Havemeyer in 1919, when a special fund to help maintain the facility was established. The second area of analysis will be the building itself. Quote, some of this will depend on how it might be repurposed, Dust said. Quote, we need to get our arms around the condition and commence a study to help us deal with that, unquote. The third issue, he said, will be the willingness of the Board of Education to proceed down a new path. Quote, we need to do some work in terms of what space the town might have elsewhere or what we do in terms of private space here in town, unquote. Does said, adding to the presumption that there, that there would be no other incremental costs for the schools. 
Finally, Mr. Doss said that it would be helpful to understand the effort of the nonprofit Greenwich Center for the Arts, who sought to convert the facility into an arts center back in 2007 to 2008. Back in 2008, the Greenwich Center for the Arts, whose board of directors included Stuart Adelberg, Marv Berenblum, Mary Corson, B. Crumbine, Mary Himes, Peter Malkin, Betsy McClare, Christine Owens, Emily Ragsdale, Crichton Reed, Fifi Sheridan, and Heidi Smith proposed the building be restored and reimagined as the art center featuring both the 400-seat proscenium theater and a 125-seat black box theater, as well as classrooms, rehearsal spaces, studios, and a cafe. The GCA, that stands for Greenwich Center of the Arts, said at the time that Bill Hevemeyer, grandson of original benefactor Henry O. Hevemeyer, that he endorsed the building's, quote, worthy adaptive reuse and restoration, unquote. In a public presentation of the Greenwich Center for the Arts in 2008, Stuart Adelberg noted a particular challenge to repurposing the building. He said that in the 1890s, steel construction was not widely in use as it is today. Quote, the reason this is relevant is that it speaks to the challenges in altering the facility for different uses. All of the walls are load-bearing, which means an extremely expensive challenge, Adelberg said. Quote, unquote. Adelberg said the community arts center would benefit all residents and harken back to a time when Greenwich Avenue was where residents congregated. Another GCA board member, Mary Himes, said during this, that same 2008 meeting that Greenwich residents shouldn't have to go to Porchester, Stamford, Norwalk, SUNY Purchase, or New York City to appreciate high-quality art. Quote, so we came up with the idea for an art center when the BOE stated that they needed to find new office space because Superintendent Dr. Larry Leverett stated Hevemeyer is, quote, crumbling, she said, noting the building was not ADA compliant and wasted large amounts of space. Quote, there is a beautiful theater with a proscenium just wasting away, unquote, Himes said. In fact, Mr. Adelberg said a drop ceiling had been put in place in the disused theater to house the building's HVAC systems. You can see the proscenium arch over the original stage, which has a Latin inscription which roughly translates to, quote, for the community and its people, unquote, he said. Architect Peter Gasofli said the proposal for the first floor theater could be reoriented, reoriented and a new stage house built with a true proscenium arch theater with fly space to accommodate all types of drama and include an orchestra pit. He said the GCA also proposed that the first floor have a black box theater, cafe, and lecture hall. Gasolfi noted the bearing walls followed the lines of the corridors and the GCA proposal was to respect that. In the end, 52,000 square feet of space would be dedicated to the arts. Last week, Mr. Duss suggested a new, the new committee hold monthly public meetings. Quote, this is an open process. This is being recorded. All documents will be in the public domain, unquote, he said. Committee member Joe Kelly said, quote, I've been speaking to Fred Camillo about this for a year and a half to two or two years, and the building is not getting any better. 
looking at our capital budgets, which are large, and we have a lot of needs for our schools, wouldn't put Havemeyer as a high priority on those capital budget needs. Basically, we're in a building we can't afford to improve, unquote. Quote, an alternative would be interesting. The people who inhabit Havemeyer, basically, they're cool with moving on to something better because the building is old, and it has features that a newer building or office facility can better address, unquote, Mr. Kelly said. Committee member Christina Downey said it was important to make a decision about what is right for the town. Quote, the staff will do whatever it's told to do, unquote, she said, quote, will certainly take their input into account, unquote. Ms. Downey said the committee's starting point should be to research the historic documents because, she said, quote, legal latitude all flows from that, unquote. Quote, we do have latitude, unquote, Mr. Dust said. There will be no suspense there, unquote. He said the only issue would be assessing the existing maintenance fund. Quote, if we repurpose the facility, the building, we will lose access to that maintenance fund, unquote, Dust said. Ms. Downey said it was unclear from the documents whether the building was intended to be granted to the town or to the school district. Mr. Kelly said he wondered whether the printing facility in the basement of the building might be outsourced or moved to town hall. Quote, there is a clutter and gathering of old and historic old, historical junk piling in that building, unquote, Kelly said, adding that he'd like the committee to tour the building and that any historic relics should be preserved. Mr. Kelly said that said about 100 people work in the Havermeyer building today. Quote, our interest in our employees, our Board of Education staff gets equal to or greater accommodations. I know Fred is on board with making sure our staff is taken care of, unquote, Kelly said. Committee member Bill Drake said he would research the location of the building's drawings. The committee will also take a look at the KG&D 15-year master plan for the district for the analysis of the Hevermeyer building. Mr. Dust said he would gather the building documents and records. And that, my friends, is the story that has reemerged today about uh, a future use for the historic Havemeyer building. You could walk by and see it on Greenwich Avenue by walking down and uh, going to the intersection with, uh, with Arch Street, uh, where the restoration hardware former old post office is. And you can look over there. There's a, a statue of um, of bowling, and um, and it's a very very beautiful place. And um, we'll keep you up to date on what happens with the latest movement to um, to preserve and to create future uses for the historic Havermeyer Building. Thank you, my friends, for tuning in to the 29th of November, 2022 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. This weekly podcast is hosted by me. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, long known as the gateway to New England. Greenwich, Connecticut was founded on July 18th, 1640. 
Since those early beginnings, Greenwich, Connecticut continues to be in the 21st century one of America's most notable and attractive communities, the special place that we call home. As always, the Greenwich Town for All Season Show podcast is made possible by Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of the Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. If you'd like to contact me, please do so by email at greenwichatownforallseasons at gmail.com. Learn more about the show and listen to past shows by going to greenwichatownforallseasons.blogspot.com. Mark your calendars. Our next show is scheduled for Tuesday, the 6th of November. Or excuse me, <laughs> I'm in the wrong, the wrong uh, month. Uh, our next show is scheduled for Tuesday, the 6th of December, 2022. I look forward to being back with you then. That's a promise. All right, take good care. Enjoy the week ahead. Bye-bye now. Thank you.